Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Daniel Siemens about his excellent new book, Stormtroopers, A New History of Hitler's Brown Shirts. Daniel, hello, and welcome to the show. Yeah, hi, Craig. Um, Daniel, we always like to begin these interviews by asking the author to tell us a little bit about their background. Okay, so, yeah, my background is that I'm trained as a historian. I got a PhD from Humboldt University in Berlin, but actually never wanted to be an historian of Nazi Germany. So it's somehow surprising to me that I ended up uh, in this field, at least at the moment. Um, I'm currently teaching at the Newcastle University in the UK, and then basically after my PhD, I was traveling back and forth between the UK and, uh, and Germany. And, um, yeah, I'm father of two, uh, so I try to balance out my kind of academic commitments with some uh, kind of family-related tasks. Um, so to your new book, um, you even remark about this in your, in your sort of acknowledgments in your prologue. Um, so why, an- why, why did you write this book? Why write another book about the essay? Uh, it's actually a slightly unusual story, probably. Um, I did a book uh, uh, which was, in a way, Nazi history related, which was a kind of critical biography of Horst Wessel, that's maybe best known as the namesake for the kind of Nazi party anthem. And when this book came out in Germany in 2009, uh, it got a prize and it was translated into English. And, and uh, apparently, uh, someone at Yale University Press uh, came across this book and liked it. Uh, and uh, as I was have been told they were always looking for someone writing a history of the stormtroopers. And so they approached me. It was not originally my idea, and I actually was not particularly keen on doing it because I thought, well, you know, there are so many books on Nazi Germany. There's certainly, I don't know, 10 books in English about the stormtroopers. So why should I be number 11? Uh, but when I had a closer look, I realized that there is actually not so much, uh, surprisingly, uh, on the SA, uh, and uh, the few books that were actually written were mostly in German, so they were not for an international audience. So I thought, okay, uh, maybe there's, uh, in a way, a gap that can be filled. And, and I also had the ambition to say something new, uh, in particular on the period after 1934. So if you basically study the SA, it's usually the rise of the Nazis and the takeover of power in 1933-34. But then everyone assumes that the history is over with the killing of Rome and others in the summer of uh, 1934. Uh, and that always struck me as not particularly uh, correct. Uh, and I wanted to find out more about the later period. So what happened to the stormtroopers after 1934 all the way down to the end of the regime in 1945? And what I also cover in the book is the kind of uh, heritage, if you want, uh, so basically, how could the, uh, how were these millions of former stormtroopers integrated into post-war German society? Yeah, and and, and we're definitely going to spend some time talking about the sort of middle and and, and end chapters of your book because that that really is the the sort of the heart of it and the, the real new I think part that people won't be as familiar with. Um, but before we get to that, I'd like to jump all the way back to the beginning and have you tell our listeners a little bit about. 
how the essay was formed, when it was formed, um, who made up the group, just a, just a very brief overview of the organization and its sort of infancy. Yeah, uh, well, I, I should actually say that uh, it's maybe a bit misleading that we always speak of the SA as if it was one organization that could be, uh, basically didn't change, the core didn't change. I mean, I would argue that the character of what was branded or labeled SSA uh, changed a few times uh, between the early 1920s and 1945. And the origins were definitely uh, in Bavaria and Munich, uh, in the kind of uh, very turbulent year 1990-1920 when also the Nazi party uh, was formed. And uh, what I learned when studying in the local archives in Munich is was that actually the, the Nazis were not the first to have an SA. Uh, there was a similar uh, organization uh, created as a kind of party self-help and uh, kind of uh, or I should explain this differently. Maybe I should say uh, one of the problems in post-war Bavaria, in Munich in particular, was that uh, speakers of political parties were always at risk and the police w was not capable or not willing to protect these different politicians. So they came up with their own kind of defense forces. And, um, and the first ones were actually the Social Democrats because their leaders had been attacked uh, and so they decided, okay, we can't rely on the police. We need our own kind of protective forces. Uh, and uh, the Nazi stormtroopers seemed pretty much uh, copied or modeled according to these first social democratic uh, protection troops, uh, with a slight difference that they were way more aggressive and actually quite quickly used to cause trouble, so not to prevent but to cause trouble. And uh, initially it was very small, so very insignificant, and apparently uh, recruiting quite heavily from uh, pupils uh, and students and young, young people in particular. Uh, and it really didn't become an important organization, even in Bavaria, not before 1922-23. So very modest beginnings. Uh, and we probably wouldn't know anything about them had the Nazi party not later on made quite a kind of a career in history. So basically, the modest beginnings are only important uh, because later it becomes an organization of up to four million. Um, what were the, the, the types of people that uh, joined the SA, were recruited in the SA? Um, what their social backgrounds? Um, I mean, obviously, predominantly men. Um, were there women yeah, involved? Uh, that, that's quite interesting. Uh, apparently, women are not formally excluded, although in reality, uh, basically, we're talking about men here. And um, there are different kinds of people that joined the stormtroopers. I think the, the core and, and the large majority of them are uh, relatively young people, uh, but not former soldiers. I mean, you can sometimes read in the literature that kind of demobilized soldiers and joined the SA. That's actually not true. Uh, it's more like uh, yeah, middle-class, lower-middle-class, young males that uh, decide to join the stormtroopers for uh, a mix of motives. And there are a few leaders who um, see this as a kind of political career option for them. Uh, I, what I describe in the book, for example, what I think is quite telling is that the, the former, uh, the, the the initial kind of one of the first units, they had a, a bicycle group. And what they did was, uh, when they had a free day on, on Sunday or a national holiday, they took their bikes uh, and they cycled from Munich to some of the smaller cities in the outskirts of town, where they basically occupied the central market square or went to a pub 
at a few points and then just try to, to cause a bit of trouble, uh, provoke people by, for example, uh, singing anti-Semitic songs. And that was their kind of fun. Uh, so it was not really, they were also perceived as kind of hooligans or troublemakers, but not really as a kind of political force, at least for quite some time. Right, yeah, in, in this early period, they're more, they're more ruffians and troublemakers. And, and as we go through the, the interview, we'll sort of see how they evolve. Because um, I think one of the things you do really well in the book is describe how the, the organization itself transforms over time. Um, of course, because of important events that we'll, we'll get to. Um, so, so let's, let's, let's scoot up a little bit to that period between 1923 to 1933. So, um, you have the failed beer hall putsch, um, you know, to 1933 when Hitler actually rises to power. Um, let's talk a little bit about the SA in that 10 year period. Um, sort of when the Nazi party is in the, in, first in the wilderness and the, in the 20 mid twenties, and then sort of starts to gain more steam, um, in 29. Um, so I'll, I'll let you go and then I'll ask you some, some follow-ups. Yeah, okay. So, so as, you, as you rightly say, I mean, uh, the failed push of uh, the fall of 1923 uh, seems to mark the end, actually, of the Nazi party and also of the stormtroopers. They're both made illegal uh, 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 and uh, nothing really seems to happen. There's the uh, Röhm, one of the leading figures who tries to organize a cover-up organization. It's called the Frontbahn. Uh, is mildly successful, but it is really not until 1926 and the new leader uh, being appointed by Hitler is called uh, Pfeffer von Salomon, uh, and he is actually the decisive person who turns the uh, stormtroopers into first, I would say, a nationwide organization, and then also creates this kind of brand with uh, uniforms and with a kind of coherent appearance in uh, in public. So it's, it's quite remarkable. I mean, uh, if you read Hitler's Mein Kampf, where he also speaks about his ideas for the stormtroopers, one of the lessons that leading Nazis apparently understood from the failed putsch of 1923 is that uh, Based on a few thousand radical ruffians and hooligans, you cannot actually uh, attack the state of Weimar. You're too weak, and you need a uh, different purpose and a different strategy. And uh, the stormtroopers in the second half of the 1920s, and then basically used, uh, at least that's the official discourse, they're used for propaganda purposes. They are, I think, uh, they are obviously a symbol uh, to reach out to the wider public, but they are also quite important for the internal cohesion within the Nazi party, within the Nazi camp. Um, and uh, they remain actually quite small until 1928-29, maybe even early 1930, with not more than 40 to 50,000 people. So if you compare this with other paramilitary leagues of the time, like, for example, the Reichsbanner, which was the kind of moderate left organization, and also the conservative, uh, the Stahlhelm, they are way more, more maybe not more important, but certainly much more bigger. And um, so in a way, the Nazis are doing a good job in internal reorganization of the stormtroopers without that this has, has immediate uh, effect, at least visible uh, effect. Um, but it is it is also important, I mean, maybe I should stress this a little bit more, that you've always had kind of extreme right-wing cells, also in the northern parts of Germany. I said earlier, uh, the beginnings are in Munich and in Bavaria and a bit in, in Württemberg and also in Thuringia, but uh, you had 
different cells of the stormtroopers uh, or who later become integrated in the stormtroopers in the north of Germany. Uh, what happens in 1925, 26, 27 is uh, that the Nazis are successful in establishing a central command of the stormtroopers in Munich uh, and basically take away uh, the the power from from local Nazi leaders and therefore consolidate uh, the central position uh, of the party in Munich. So I think this is the kind of precondition for the very quick rise that then happens between 1930 and 1932 when uh, membership numbers skyrocket and the SA reaches up to 400,000 people. Um, do you think another part of the reason for the skyrocketing membership is the bad economy and that all these young men are unemployed? Yeah, I mean. Uh, most definitely. I mean, that is the main reason. And the, uh, what I try to show in the book is that, uh, in particular in these early 1930s, there are a lot of men joining the stormtroopers, not necessarily because they like the ideology or they're attracted by it, but simply because they lack, they lack a purpose. They, they're looking for, for chances in life. They, and, and then the Nazis quite cleverly exploit uh, existing networks, for example, of uh, well, neighborhood gangs, if you want, for example, or just for friendships. I mean, this is how you get recruited in the in the early Nazi movement, basically because you know someone who knows someone, and they take you for an event, uh, and they they promise you something like uh, good comradeship, and also uh, tell you that you you actually have you know have a meaningful existence, and you can do something good at a time when uh, apparently a lot of people in Germany think, well, what am I doing here? No one needs me. No one wants my skills. Uh, so this is a good time to, uh, when when political parties can exploit the kind of uh, looking for for orientation, in particular by by younger people. Yeah, I think this is one of the the very interesting things about your book. You 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 do a very good job of of describing um, the desire for comradeship, um, and uh, amongst um, a lot of these men, this is the primary reason. Um, why they joined did they do you find that they became more ideological over the time that they spent in the SA because you you do mention that um, a, a, a lot of the members don't stay for very long um, but as for the yeah. ones that do do they do they sort of become more and more indoctrinated or do the, the the reasons that they joined initially economic opportunity comradeship something to do or do those remain the central reasons uh, well, I, I would I would differentiate here between two types of of stormtroopers. There is a smaller percentage of stormtroopers that are ideologically driven, and they join early on, and they remain loyal to the organization. And these are the ones that are the high SA generals in the early 1940s. So you have these people ideologically driven, maybe joining in 1922, 23, and then remaining in the organization and making uh, very often also quite a considerable career in it. But you have, I think, the large majority of people are. A German man who, for some time of their life, for different reasons, uh, join the stormtroopers uh, and sometimes stay and sometimes leave, uh, but are not particularly uh, affected to it, or maybe not affected is not the right word, but attached to it. Uh, it's not to the ideology. So they're looking for something. If they get it, it's good. If they don't get it, they also drop out. So that happens quite a lot uh, after the, uh, 1934-35, when actually the SA still has millions of members, but a lot of people, uh, you know, do just reduce service, and, and probably some of them also simply stay enlisted because they fear reprisal if they leave. Mm. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about is that um, in the book you make a, you, you talk a, a little bit about how they became a brand. Um, mm -hmm. They had official shirts, they had official cigarettes, 
Um, they were a sort of a money-making operation for the party. Um, and can you talk a little bit about, um, one, how they got the idea to do that, and two, um, was it sort of essential at the time for the party to have a way to use this organization as a way to generate revenue? Um, yes, I mean, uh, very much so, but maybe uh, I should I should say this a bit to start differently, meaning that uh, there are two arenas where politics is made in the interwar years uh, in Germany, but in, in many other countries of, of Europe, and in particular Central Europe. Uh, you have the parliament, which is the traditional place, uh, and you have the street. And the Nazis are a party that, although they are sometimes elected into parliament, uh, their kind of main area of operation is the street. So this is where they have to kind of uh, be visible and get the message across. Uh, and the street obviously is very contested. They're not the only party there. So they have to make sure to come up with a form of organization that it gives an impression uh, that they can actually handle uh, given the uh, kind of limited amount of resources and also uh, given that maybe their members are not always the brightest in conversation. So, I mean, they're quite clear, for example, that if they send an ordinary stormtrooper in a political conversation with someone else from a different party, uh, it's very unlikely that they win, that they have the better arguments and that the people are sufficiently skilled to debate their course. So what they, in a way... Uh, using the stormtroopers and organizing them in the sense that uh, it's about uh, they should they should basically give the image of unity, of strength, of determination, uh, but they were not allowed to talk, for example, when they were marching through the streets. So it's also about discipline and controlling the members. Uh, it's not only spreading fear and appearing extremely violent to people who see these marching columns, it's also to keep discipline with, among the stormtroopers uh, themselves. Um, okay, so um, we'll move up a little bit. Um, so, you know, Hitler comes to power in 1933. Um, he's now chancellor. Um, you see this sort of growing rift in the party um, in terms of what direction to go in now that they're actually in power. Um, and this leads to rivalries with, uh, within the party. So let's let's talk about the Night of the Long Knives. I, I know that most of our listeners are probably relatively familiar with what that is, um, but quick, can you give a, a just a very brief overview of it, and then I have some questions to ask you. Uh, okay, so so the the kind of general narrative would be as you, as you say, the Nazis used the year 1933 to consolidate power. Uh, they do this in the coalition with the conservative forces. So both of them are quite happy to suppress the working classes, at least the left wing parties, the uh, trade unions, etc. And when this is achieved, uh, and this is basically in the fall of 1933, there's increasingly the debate about the course uh, and the direction for future years, and there's a certain, you could call them left-wing Nazis, who have actually believed in some of the propaganda slogans that the Nazis have always used, and this is that they are, in a way, trying to reconcile socialism and nationalism, as the title of, of the party also tells you. Uh, and they're the more kind of, if you want to call them conservative Nazis, who actually have no interest in uh, turning everything upside down, but are quite happy with the uh, arrangements as they are, meaning that the conservatives and the Nazis work hand in hand. Uh, and there's a particular problem with the stormtroopers, because the stormtroopers uh, are actually, as an organization, by the end of 1933, they are bigger than the Reichswehr, 
uh, for the regular army. And there's, in a way, a kind of contest for power between the legal uh, kind of armed forces and the paramilitaries from the stormtroopers. And this escalates in the spring of 1934 and then leads to and a murder of around 100 people, mostly of them being high officials in the SA, which uh, is then seen as a kind of end, at least, of the political aspirations uh, of the stormtroopers, uh, if not the organization as such. And the most famous being Ernst Brahm. Um, and one of the things right, I wanted to ask you about is that you, you, you have a section in the book about this sort of uh, myth of homosexuality that is used as part of the justification for these murders. Um, yes. Uh, if, if I, I mean, just, just I, I mean, can speak brief about it. One of the reasons in which Hitler justified these purges a few days later is that basically the, the stormtroopers were a bunch of uh, kind of, at least the leaders of the stormtroopers, to be more precise, had behaved indecently and that uh, they're run by a group of homosexuals, uh, room including them, and they had basically dishonored uh, the proper name of Nazism. They had basically, they are made responsible for all the evils and all the violence that has occurred in the last uh, 15 to 16 months. Uh, uh, and Hitler quite cleverly exploits the kind of widespread uh, unhappiness about the violent behavior of the Nazis when they came to power. So it's not the case that everyone in Germany, even those who had actually welcomed the Nazis coming to power liked what they did afterwards. Uh, so it's in a way the promise, okay, there have been some excesses, there have been some extremely ugly and violent uh, people, and they identified as a stormtrooper. So it's it, Hitler's promise basically to purify the movement uh, and his party from these undesirable uh, people and presenting a kind of clean national socialism later. And one of the arguments used is uh, was playing also on prejudices against homosexuals. Uh, and it's quite interesting that I think uh, some of these prejudices has, have survived quite a long time. So there are recent studies that still try to prove that uh, stormtroopers were kind of uh, a bunch of, of people with homosexual leanings or, or kind of preferences. And I, I have actually not found any evidence of that. So I would be very careful and rather try to explain how this kind of prejudice at the time could be exploited politically. Yeah, I, I thought I was I was struck by this uh, section of the book because I thought it was something very important to talk about too, and I'm, I'm glad that you uh, were willing to sort of go into some detail about that. Um, so the the common narrative has always been that after the after the night of the long knives, the SA sort of disappears, uh, or they're not disappears, but uh, becomes far less important. Um, and, and you demonstrate very clearly in in, in this sort of the the third four, uh, second, third, fourth parts of your book, that, that that's not the case. Um, so let, let's start with talking about the essay between 1934 and 1939. Uh, particularly, you list a couple of, of, of things that the essay um, really gets involved in, but I'd like to focus on their sort of anti-Jewish activities in that, in that five-year span. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there may be two things that are worth mentioning. First of all, I should say that I wouldn't deny that the stormtroopers are in crisis after the summer of 1934. I would simply say that this crisis doesn't last forever. It's merely a year or two, and then they start to reorganize themselves and discover new uh, activities. For example, 
well, high, I would call it hijacking middle-class organizations that were quite uh, important in Germany. So they become a kind of umbrella, umbrella organization, and they politicize things that people are doing anyway. They just now get a kind of Nazified reading or understanding. But with regard to anti-Semitism in particular, I think that the self-perception of at least the ideologically driven stormtrooper is that they perceive themselves as guardians of the people's community. Uh, and actually, as they have operated as a kind of second police force in 1933, they continue doing this, although it's made illegal. Uh, but they are still a kind of inofficial policeman, in particular in, in smaller German cities and villages, uh, someone with a stormtrooper uniform remains someone who represents the state and authority, and sometimes also, you know, uh, starts to to uh, put people in, in, in kind of prison. So uh, it's quite interesting. This is one of the areas where they quite cons- uh, consistently exercise power, although it's maybe a bit below the radar. And uh, hist- previous historians have overlooked these kind of things because it's not in the kind of, it doesn't happen in Berlin. It's not in the core of where political decisions is made, but it's more in the region where on a day-to-day basis the stormtroopers remain important. I think this also explains why they are capable uh, of uh, organizing the programs in November 1938, because in kind of most historical books that I have read, you read like, hey, the stormtroopers cease to ex- basically cease to exist, are severely sidelined, and then out of the blue in, in November 1939, they are able to burn more than 100 synagogues and, and do all these kind of evil things. And I think uh, as much better explanation is that they have never ceased to operate. It's just that we haven't paid attention to it. Um, and and they they had new leadership. Um, and and so I, can you? Yeah, they, they had a, they had a new leader. Uh, he's called Victor Lutzer. Um, he I'm not sure whether he was really uh, brilliant for the stormtroopers. He's uh, I mean. He, he died after in a car accident in 1943, but he has left a kind of diary, which is very interesting, and I think I'm one of the first who've actually seen it. In, in, in the diary, he begins just a few weeks after the night of the long knives. I would say also because he needs some justification that he is actually one of the few SA leaders who is among the winners of this project because he, he gets the leadership from Rome. Uh, and uh, this new leader then tries obviously, to consolidate and, and give a new meaning to this organization. And he develops, in particular, close links to the Wehrmacht. So the idea is to work hand-in-hand SA and Wehrmacht uh, and join forces against the SS, who is becoming ever more powerful in the second half of the 1930s. Mm. Right, and it is whereas Rom wanted the sort of the SA to overtake the regular army. Um, yeah, I mean... Could- uh, Obviously, the, the SS is part of the SA for for really long time. So they basically, the SS emancipates out of the murder of 1934. Uh, and uh, yes, the relationship between the regular army and the stormtroopers are particularly bad in the spring of 1934. But uh, Lutz is quite successful in bringing these two uh, closer together over time. And I think this has also to do with the kind of expensive German foreign policy starting in 1935-36, and then later dismantling of Czechoslovakia occupation or Anschluss uh, of uh, Austria. So uh, in, in, in this context, the stormtroopers, I would say, have a kind of at least a partial comeback also on the political arena. 
Yeah, and I definitely want to talk uh, more about these these issues in sort of specific. Um, so, what? How does the role of the SA change when this expansionist policy sort of kick in when they when they annex Austria, when they annex the Sudetenland, and then I'll ask you about Poland uh, separately. But we'll start with that. Okay. So basically, don't don't forget that the Nazis had always been strong and also had been made illegal. Uh, so you actually have Austrian Nazi refugees in the German Reich uh, prior to 1938, and uh, with the Anschluss, basically you have most of them return uh, and are not always welcome, but they are quite successful in in, in coming to power. And, and that's actually a relatively straightforward case. It's more interesting in the case of Czechoslovakia because, as you know, there was quite a significant German minority in Czechoslovakia. And uh, uh, it was really interesting for me to, to learn that among the so-called ethnic Germans in these re- regions in, in Eastern Europe, uh, sympathies for the Nazis were usually quite high and uh, kind of sympathies for the stormtroopers had remained intact. So I think it's fair to say that within the German Reich, the reputation of the stormtroopers have actually uh, severely harmed and diminished after uh, summer of 1934. But still, if you gave ethnic Germans uh, in Eastern and, and uh, Southeastern Europe, the opportunity to join Nazi organizations after, for example, the territory had been integrated into the Reich, then uh, many of them decided to join the, the stormtroopers and not, for example, the SS. Um, and in the case of Poland, um, you, you write a chapter um, about how the SA was an important part of sort of Germanizing conquered Poland. Um, that they moved out there to become farmers and so on. Uh, uh, can you can you just describe this um, this a little bit? Yeah, I mean, there's there's one chapter in the book about the idea of German colonization and DSA developing plans and ideas to be at the forefront of it, which is later absorbed into the planning by the SS, so that's quite a typical <laughs> development. But uh, I thought this really interesting that uh, it's basically the result of the purge of 1934 is that the SA is desperately trying for and, and looking for new meaningful things they can do. Uh, and one of it is, is basically engage in, in settlement policies. Uh, originally, it's about uh, sending people uh, in thinly populated areas in eastern Germany, but with the expansion of the German Reich and then later also the occupation of Poland, this becomes way more aggressive and, and in a way grand scale. Although I have to say they are largely unsuccessful with that, uh, as is the SS later as well. So there are actually not so many German men who happily you know, move towards Eastern Europe and try to, to make a luck there. And, and in particular for stormtroopers, um, uh, they're just the num- the actual numbers of people who actually go into the European East is, is, is uh, insignificant. But the, the planning, and this is what I'm studying, so this is uh, well, makes a difference. It tells you also about how they imagined uh, their role in uh, in basically Germanized Europe after final victory. And this planning, interestingly, continues well into 1943-44 when basically militarily. Most people know that's probably not going to end the German way. So uh, I have a, a few lines in the book about a meeting of um, high-profile SA leaders in uh, Poznan, so which is uh, uh, at the time Posen, 
uh, part of Poland today, central Poland, and, and they have a meeting, I think, in May 1943, and then basically they can't even uh, yeah, provide the security, so they're, they're, they are already under pressure, but they're still listening to lectures about uh, imperialism in, you know, from the Roman Empire to uh, the present days, and imagining themselves as the future rulers of large parts of Europe. So they are a bit out of touch with reality, to yeah. So, with that being said, uh, let's talk a little bit more about their participation in in World War II in, in sort of a broader sense. Uh, you do mention that there are entire units of uh, soldiers fighting uh, that are that are SA men. Um, was was that done on purpose? Was that uh, were these yes, units I mean, they, designed they, they, in this way? They also have their own elite formation, which is called SA Standarte Feldherrnhalle. Uh, and that was basically to showcase how uh, an ideologically driven uh, Nazi military unit should look like. I mean, it's, it's, you have to, it's a bit difficult. And there I struggled in writing the book because what happens in 1939 when uh, Germany declares war to Poland is that the majority, in particular of the younger stormtroopers, are drafted into the Wehrmacht. So uh, they're no longer visible as stormtroopers. Um, but they become part of the regular armed forces. And uh, I wanted to find out a little bit uh, whether this has any effect on how the German Wehrmacht actually fights the war. So it's basically my idea was maybe with hundreds of thousands of stormtroopers being integrated into the regular army, it's probably uh, they helped kind of ideological cohesion and, and maybe also discipline. Uh, so a bit similar to what they do in the German countryside in the 1930s with regard to uh, anti-Semitism and, and local policing, so to say, they now do it within the army. Uh, and there are other units, uh, in particular, for example, the paratroopers, where apparently the, uh, they, they recruit very heavily among the stormtroopers. And, and let's not forget it is seen as a way of uh, you could you could do for example a military service as part of the SR Standarte Feldherrnhalle. It was a kind of alternative military service, uh, and for some of them that was simply also a career option. And, and how did these units interact with, say, the Waffen SS, which definitely had an ideological component um, and were sort of seen as you know that was the model um, for what German fighting men should be, German racial yeah. racial elite, all that. Um, I mean, it's quite interesting that stormtroopers had a different, I think, perception of, I mean, they didn't see themselves as a racial elite, not in the first place. I think here's also why they are more inclusive than, for example, the SS or the, I mean, Waffen-SS is, again, a different matter. But um, maybe I, I should explain it that way. Um we have focused quite a lot on the SS and on the ideology and the ideas of racial superiority, uh, but that's not attractive to a lot of people uh, around because it only targets a relatively small percentage of the population. Um, and to become a stormtrooper for the SA uh, is much easier, so to say. You don't have to prove a lot of things. The only thing that you have to prove is that you're willing to fight and be absolutely loyal to the leadership. And this is something that a lot of people can actually quite easily uh, achieve. And I think in times of, of war and, and crisis and uncertainty, so sometimes just an easy option also to prove lo your loyalty. I mean, that brings you back to Poland. 
the stormtroopers recruit among the ethnic Germans uh, uh, living in uh, what was then occupied uh, Poland. And um, just think of how you could actually prove loyalty to the new rulers. Uh, it was a, a difficult thing because in these multi-ethnic territories, well, you had people speaking several languages, uh, they had marriage, uh, uh, and, and it sometimes, very often, it was not very clear. So to join an organization that uh, didn't ask for much apart from participation and, and just, you know, speaking the right language, if you will, um, uh, is, is quite easy. Uh, and, and even the language, uh, it was quite interesting to see for me that they offered language courses. So they were actually recruiting among people that didn't speak German, and they, by uh, doing service for the stormtroopers in the occupied territories, they were basically made into Germans. Hmm. Okay. Um, let's shift gears a little bit to uh, one of your last chapters about um, sort of essay um, infiltration into the foreign service, particularly in southeastern Europe. Um, mm -hmm. This was something that I, I didn't know really anything about before I read your book. Um, you you describe how these sort of SA leaders that I mean the, the generals that you talk about in this chapter who serve as diplomats are longtime SA uh, members. They survived, you know, the purge, and um, they've been able to na they navigated uh, Nazi Germany for a while. So, um, why were they interested in diplomatic service? Um, were they interested in it? Was it something that was just careerism or a new opportunity or why did they do it, and, and how did they operate? Well, I wouldn't say that they were particularly interested in diplomatic service, but they are interested, always interested in always seeing themselves as leaders. So you have a lot of potential leaders that are looking for an opportunity, uh, and they just grab it uh, if given. And, and they also have an interest in European fascism. So I think this is also one reason why the, these SA generals then end up as kind of uh, um, literally ambassadors in Southeastern Europe, because these are uh, countries that are basically under German influence, but not formally occupied, uh, but very often run also by either extreme right wing, if not uh, openly fascist uh, regimes. And... Um, they, they is kind of there's room for cooperation that uh, apparently uh, this is one of the, the uh, I would say one of the reasons why they are deployed there uh, can be more easily achieved uh, in a kind of uh, good cooperation between different fascists than it is with uh, just military force or with the SS that basically comes with the ideology of being superior and telling you what to do in the first place. Um, but it also has to do uh, with internal developments within the Foreign Office. So uh, there are a few people in the Foreign Office who try to notify the Foreign Office and to keep the SS out uh, as good as possible. And they uh, uh, come, or they come up with the idea that maybe using the, the stormtroopers who are totally loyal to the party is a better way of doing it than uh, you know just relying on the career diplomats. So there are a few things that come together here, and for the stormtroopers, it's a great opportunity, in particular for these leaders, to actually come to power after years where they didn't feel rightfully acknowledged. So a lot of them actually had been uh, local police chiefs in, in, in the German Reich before. Um, was there tension between sort of the SA diplomats and then the more career foreign, uh, foreign service uh, people? No, well, this is at least this is what you 
what you read after 1945, right? So in the attempt to whitewash their own history, the foreigners always said these were kind of invaders. The SA had deposited these people there, but they had nothing to do with us. They were the kind of black sheep. I think in reality what you see is, uh, yes, some of these diplomats are not the most competent people, but it's probably uh, true also for regular uh, diplomats, and the interaction seemed to work fairly okay. Having said that, you, what you find in these in the archival documents, of course, is a lot of rivalry and, and bad talking about each other. But I, I didn't think this is specific uh, for the stormtroopers. So I was actually surprised that some of these SA diplomats, uh, I mean, if you measure them against what they should do for the regime, are actually not really so bad in in achieving their goals. And, and what I concentrate on is, of course, the the implementation of the Holocaust. In, in these regions, and unfortunately, I mean, they're fairly successful. Um, let's let's turn now to to after the war. Um, you, you make a very compelling case that uh, they sort of that former SA officers use the fact that the pur- you know the narrative of the purge that you know the SA was unimportant after that to sort of mitigate their roles in things like the Holocaust and other war crimes. Um, can you talk about how successful that 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 strategy was? Well, it's brilliantly successful. I mean, uh, there, there are two things that, that are really important. The first is the International Military Tribunal in Nuremberg, where all the kind of uh, surviving uh, big guys, as well as leading organizations of the Third Reich, are on trial. And uh, the SA escapes from being declared a criminal organization, which is brilliant news for the large majority of the kind of low rank members, because that means that they're not automatically punished for being a member of the stormtroopers. Um, and uh, as you can easily imagine, there are hundreds of thousands of highly kind of, uh, well, people who have actually done more harm or had belonged to organizations who are way more uh, involved and implicit in war crimes. And uh, against uh, these kind of really strong and, and um, incremented uh, people, maybe and. and normal kind of stormtrooper member wasn't the first priority of the authorities. So that's good for them. However, uh, it's also very interesting that they use the narrative of the stormtroopers of being kind of unsuccessful and sidelined in their own defense and say, well, actually, when the war started, we had nothing to do with it because we were sidelined and we had no, no say in the Third Reich. It goes so far to say that the idea of the good Nazi state dies in 1934. So there's the idea there's a good Nazism and there's bad Nazism. And the SA was a model for good Nazi behavior. And, and then, you know, it comes to an end in 1934. And for all the rest, we're not responsible. Uh, and they're really successful in, in uh, getting this message across. Uh, and <laughs> what I find maybe most striking is that the first books in German, at least, that provided a comprehensive history of the stormtroopers are written by a former stormtrooper leader himself. So someone who had access and knew it firsthand, so to say, he came up with two books in the 1960s on the stormtroopers, and they both end in 1933 or 1934, respectively. So it even, it's not only that uh, it's in the uh, part of the uh, military tribunal and, and the verdicts of the 1950s and, and the early 1960s, it's also that this kind of uh, understanding becomes part of academic scholarship. Um. Yeah, fascinating. Um, as a way to wrap up discussion of your book, I wonder if you can tell 
our listeners and and hopefully potential readers, uh, one or two things you would really like uh, people to take away from your book. The two, one or two things. Well, I think in light of, of recent political developments, um, it's um, I think worth reading the book and trying to be open to the idea that although this is a history book, it's a book of the past, and uh, we know this is quite well compared to other periods in time, um, it's not so distant. And the motives and the reasons why people have joined the Stormtroopers and behaved the way they've done it, uh, it's closer to us than we would like it to have. So my idea is to read it also and, and it should alert you to some of the developments that we see nowadays uh, and uh, we very often probably think that the Nazi past is, is over, which I think it is, uh, but some of the ideas and some of the things that made, for example, the co- uh, comradeship and the stormtroopers attractive, I think they can uh, they can come back, so to say, and we have to be very careful about it. Um, well, um Again, I want to thank you um, for being willing to talk to us about your book. Um, it really is a great book. Um, I hope our listeners will go out and get it and read it. Um, it's it's fascinating. Um, and and before I let you go, I just have always like to ask one final question: Is uh, now that this book is done, published, I hope people can read it. Um, what are you working on now? great that you're asking this question uh, because I've decided to really give up on the stormtroopers now uh, and I will wanted to deal with good guys uh, uh, and the next book will be a global history of the United Restitution Organization which was an organization founded in the second half of the 1940s in London uh, of uh, basically Jewish lawyers of German descent who then in the 1950s and 60s play uh, an important role in restitution cases uh, and uh, it's a fascinating book with a lot of impressive and really positive characters. I look forward to writing it. Well, that's great. Uh, no pressure, but when you're done, I'd, I'd like to have you back to talk well, about it. Thanks very much. <laughs> um, thanks, Greg. It was a pleasure talking to you. It was a pleasure talking to you, and I want to thank everybody again for listening uh, to New Books in German Studies, uh, part of the New Books Network, and we'll see you all next time. <laughs>